Welcome, nerds from around the world. Grab yourself a tasty beverage, get comfy, and prepare to get your nerd on as we dive into the world of computing past, present, and future. This is Lunduke's Big Tech Show for April 9th, 2023, which is as far into the future as we have ever gone. It still blows my mind on a regular basis that the year is 2023. (laughs) I mean, we are so far. For those of us who grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, this is beyond the future i mean this is we're we're well into jetsons territory here like we should have rosie the robot and flying cars that go and everything else and i should be working at spacely space sprockets but alas here we are there is there is actually some pretty cool hardware news that's been happening over the last week or so that i wanted to catch everyone up on because i I love it when we see really, truly interesting and new computing hardware. It doesn't happen as often as I'd like. So much of the hardware releases and updates that we see are very... I don't want to use the word pedestrian because that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But they're they're kind of dull. They're drab. They're slight revisions. they're, They're... companies producing their own version of the same thing that everyone else is doing. You know what I mean? Whether it's, I mean, look at cell phones. Almost every smartphone is exactly the same. I mean, with with very few differences. Some of them have expandable SD card storage. Some of them don't. Some of them have... (laughs) have really great cameras and some of them have slightly better than that cameras like it's really they're all and they're all crazy fast but running bloated operating systems like they're they're the same form factor they're mostly running on the same chipset it's it's incredibly dull so when i see something new happening it it really causes me to stand up and take notice two companies two companies right now are making a go at doing something a little bit different. Well, there's more than that, but there's the two that caught my eye this week. System76 and Pine64. Both both companies with lots of numbers in their title. Let's talk about what's happening at Pine64 real quick. I wrote an article about this up at the Lunduke Journal. Check it out. Uh, Lunduke.substack.com, blah, 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 blah. They've got a RISC-V tablet coming. Like a tablet, an actual honest-to-goodness tablet running a RISC-V processor. That is insane. That is that is a really, really big deal. I mean, there's a whole lot of gotchas that come with this particular tablet, which we'll get into in a moment. But the pure idea of it, because a RISC-V processor, the RISC-V... <laughs> In Roman numerals, it is a truly open specification for a CPU, meaning any fabricator can come along and build their own version of that RISC-V, of a RISC-V processor using that same instruction set and everything. If we're looking forward to a future 
where our computer's hardware, and when I say computer, I mean smartphone, tablet, every device that has an operating system that runs on it. When we're looking forward to that future where we don't have an unknown amount of spyware essentially built into the CPUs, RISC-V, by necessity, is a big part of that. Because whether we like to admit it or not, as good and and truly incredible as, say, the current line of Intel processors are, like an Intel i9 is an amazing, amazing processor. It truly is. It does some pretty radical stuff. But we also know that it has a subprocessor built into it that is based on a 486, which is kind of neat by itself, that it uses, that it, that has complete and total ring zero access to your system, meaning it has access to every bit, byte, bloop, and blop. If you type it, if it's stored on your computer, it has access to it. And in fact, that little sub-processor, which you are not allowed to access, is running a version of the Minix operating system with its own web server. Now, ask yourself, why would a company like Intel need to put a secret processor, essentially a secret whole computer, inside your computer that you are not allowed to access, that has access to everything about you and all of the memory in your machine, and has a web server? Why would it need that? Because it's spying on you. There is no other reason why you'd need that. So for a future where we have true, real, somewhat dependable security and privacy with the computers and computing devices we own, we need processors that we can verify do not have that functionality in it. Right? We need that. And so a truly open processor specification where you can have the same basic processor with the same instruction sets fabricated by any of a number of different companies, all based on the same open specification is hypercritical. This is not the first RISC-V system we've seen. We've seen various system on boards, like like uh, the variable variances of like the Raspberry Pi, but running the Risk Five processor out there in the wild, with variable levels of success. But this is this is an interesting one because Pine sixty four has had some success. They have a phone, uh, the the Pine phone, and then they have a laptop line as well. But now they have a tablet line that they're shipping with a RISC-V processor. Now, I'm going to read a few bits to you because, boy, are there caveats to this. Um, They're going to begin taking pre-orders for this Linux-powered, they call it the Pine Tab V, you know, for the RISC-V, on April 11th, so just a few days from now. The pricing of it is, is incredibly reasonable. Uh, it starts at 159 bucks. However, however, uh, well, the the system as it stands right now today does not actually boot. 
meaning they've got some work to do, not on the hardware, but on the software side to get Linux not just optimized for this this system on the chip and this LCD and, and the panel and all of it, this hardware, but they need to get it just booting. There, uh, uh, the the hardware specifications. It is a twelve eighty by eight hundred LCD, and it comes in two versions. Uh, the cheap version, one hundred fifty nine bucks, has four gigs of RAM and a sixty four gig eMMC card. Or the two hundred and nine dollar version has eight gigs of RAM and a hundred twenty eight gig eMMC card. Honestly, the pricing is sweet. Straight up sweet. Even if the Risk Five, once it's booting, the performance is not stellar, that's still some pretty sweet specs for a fairly inexpensive uh, tablet. I'm going to read a few quotes to you now because this kind of shocked me. <laughs> with how many issues they're having? Uh, this is this is from their announcement. Bear in mind, the, this exact wording comes straight from Pine Sixty Four's announcement. Quote. Okay, so I suppose there is one more thing you should know about the Pine Tab V, after all. While it walks and quacks like a Pine Tab 2, which, by the way, so this is Lunduke talking, the Pine Tab 2 is the ARM version of the same tablet, which costs the same, but it uses an ARM processor instead of the RISC-V, and it currently boots. All right, back to their quote. It sure as heck isn't an ARM machine. You are basically buying into an idea, a vision, a dream. Indeed, unlike its ARM brethren, it doesn't even boot Linux as of today, at least as not as far as I know. What? So if you are in the market for an open, high-quality, and sexy-looking tablet that doesn't work since the software for it is a ways off from pre-alpha, then you'll be thrilled to know we've got you covered. Holy heavens. That's amazing. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm almost speechless. Because it's funny, as blunt as they are about it clearly not even booting, it still is interesting to me. Because you, you know that people will get it working. But for, for right now, it's not even working. Um, here's, a, here's another quote. Here's what I want you to take away from this section. If you want a working Linux tablet, then go with the Pine Tab 2, the ARM-powered version. However, if you already completed your Picasso collection and no longer take pleasure in neatly arranging your sports cars in the garage, but you have an interest in things ending with the letter V and some money to burn, then I feel like the Pine Tab V is a prime candidate pickup option for you. Go on, do it, I dare you. <laughs> I love the attitude. <laughs> so so there you go I, I i don't know what to make of all of that but i want one i want that little paperweight <laughs> holy moly I, I i really would love to see a risk five powered tablet it's exciting to me that, that that is a possibility that is coming in the future fingers crossed it works great the more people that pick them up and the more people that are out there tinkering with it and trying to get debian or arch or whatever linux distribution rocking on these things the better um but clearly it's not ready for prime time yet because they can't even get the darn thing booting yet how fast does it run i don't know because they can't get it to boot maybe it runs great maybe it runs like molasses who knows uh, however 
That said, there is other hardware out there that is even less far along in the development, but is also quite interesting. You heard us last week talk about Framework, and Framework as a company is doing all this work to make really modular laptops. But they're kind of alone in that field. Laptops where you can swap out different pieces and parts and, and swap out the GPU and swap out the main board and swap out the iOS panels. They're it. Framework is the only one doing stuff like that. Truly unique laptops. For the moment. It looks like, according to a series of posts from Carl Rochelle, the CEO of System76, who is a very nice guy, I might add. Just want to point out, good company, System76. I've been a big fan of their desktops for a long time, but their laptops have always been a bit boring, uh, they they mostly just rebadged Clio's, which basically means that they go to other other companies that build laptops, build generic branded laptops, take those laptops, and it, maybe they modify them a tiny bit, uh, and maybe they just work with with uh, Linux to update drivers to make sure they run great on them, and then they ship them with their own you know logos and badging and everything. Very generic laptops. Not bad. I, I want to make that clear. Not bad laptops. Just generic laptops. That seems to be something they're trying to change. Because System76 builds these really great desktops. They call them the Thelio line. With wood and custom molded and what laser cut metal and custom daughter boards. And they, they try and release a lot of stuff as open source. They do a great job with that. Now it looks like they're trying to do the same thing with laptops, and they're calling it the Virgo line. Uh, they're, they're milling the whole thing out of uh, 60061 aluminum, which is pretty standard. I've got some pictures up, up, on, the, up on the website, lunduk.substack.com, if you want to see some of the shots. Right now, all they're really showing off is some of the laser-cut aluminum case, and the fact that they're testing, um, quote, uh, Kyle low profile X switches for the keyboard. It says that they say that they've tried to do low profile cherry switches for the keyboard, um, but they had a problem because the caps for the keyboard couldn't be removed easily once they were on. And what they want to do is they want to make it so that the keyboard on this new Virgo laptop that they're building has removable and rearrangeable key switches, which is a pretty cool idea. Uh, I really like the fact that you could have a reconfigurable keyboard with decent switches, hopefully, inside of a laptop. I, I like that a lot. Now, outside of all of that, we really don't know anything. We don't know anything about these Project Virgo machines. We don't know when they're coming out. We don't know how much they're going to cost. We don't know about their the CPUs, the GPUs, what kind of battery we're looking at. We, we don't know if, if they're going to be all that modular. As far as we know, the modularity will end right there at the fact that you can rearrange the key switches. But the fact that they're looking at something as configurable, modular, and customizable as rearranging the keys on your keyboard, that does bode well 
for what else that System 76 might be looking at in terms of modularity and self-repairability of these Project Virgo laptops. I, I am I am really excited to see what they come out with uh, going into the future. Um, all right, we're coming up on a break. Stick around. Next up, we're going to be talking about the Internet Archive, a massive lawsuit that's happening with it, and what that means for the future of the Internet Archive. <laughs> Stick around. Father wears his Sunday best. Mother's tired, she needs a rest. Kids are playing up downstairs Sister's sighing in her sleep Brother's got a date to keep He can't hang around Our house In the middle of our street Our house Welcome back. I, um, I'm a big fan of the Internet Archive. I, I absolutely love it. Archive.org is one of the best websites ever. I mean, the the Internet Wayback Machine alone, where it it attempts to archive just about just about almost every iteration of all the major websites out there that you can dream of over so many years, is an invaluable resource. There, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. There's a lot of stuff that's not there. Uh, some of the some of the archives are kind of half corrupted. It's not perfect, but it's it's so helpful and useful. Plus, their massive massive archive of of scanned in magazines and newspapers dating back years and decades. Huge software collections of 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 abandoned software from the 80s and 90s. Floppies and CD ROMs that have been brought into there. ROM images from video game cartridges, admittedly some of it of dubious legality, depending on which locale you're in. But it's still, when you're looking at the preservation of media, magazines, books, music, audio recordings, uh, computer software, any of it, there is no better resource nowadays than the Internet Archive. I mean, there's no, there, it's just, it's so hugely beneficial. A lot of times when I sit down to do research on a particular old computing topic, say from 1984, well, in order to really get good data on it, I've got to go to, go to content that it was from pre-internet days. And I do have a pretty good collection of, you know, old books and magazines and newspapers and whatnot, but nothing beats the scanned archive collection that is available on the Internet Archive of magazines and whatnot from that era. It's just hugely helpful. So when I see that the Internet Archive is, is getting sued, I stand up and take notice. And this has been going on for a little while. Uh, the, uh, the, the website, the, the lawsuit in, cl- in question is uh, Hachette or Hachette versus the Internet Archive. Now, the Hachette Publishing Group um, is is all kind of in one thing. This, this involves uh, Penguin, Random House, and HarperCollins are all in on this. And they all are alleging that the Internet Archive has committed copyright infringement on their works. And this all stems back from the fact that the Internet Archive began to lend out books digitally that they themselves did not own when the when the pandemic hit, 
right? So um, essentially the Internet Archive, and this is my general understanding of their take. I could be wrong on some of this. I've seen a lot of conflicting information statements, including from the Internet Archive themselves. Their general statement is that they're in compliance with copyright law because they're working with other libraries. So let's say, um, for example, let's say I, Lunduke, create the lundukebookarchive.org and I made a deal with a library in Houston, Texas. And I and I got and I I went to them and I said, okay, what books do you have? Okay, now I know what books you have, and now I'm going to have digital versions of those books, scanned in versions, text versions, um, EPUB versions, whatever. And I'm going to allow people to check out those books from my website digitally because you have them, and I'm working with you, so therefore I'm allowed to check them out. To people and lend them to people. The problems were many in this system. The first being that the Internet Archive didn't really have any way of verifying that though that all of the books it was lending to people were actually not currently being lent out to other people. They just didn't have a system in place for it. They didn't have the manpower for it. And so it was really dubious at best. Uh, likewise, it was very easy to work around any checks that the Internet Archive put in place. So if people wanted to use it to steal books there, you know, borrow them and never check them back in, it was very, very easy for them to do that. So what these what these publishers did is they filed a lawsuit against the Internet Archive alleging copyright infringement. A federal judge has ruled on that case in the favor of the publishers. Now, now this this means this this is kind of bad for the whole Internet Archive because it's not just one subsidiary of the Internet Archive that they're suing. They're suing the Internet Archive, which includes the Wayback Machine, all of the music, the software, all of it. The Internet Archive lawyers are appealing that decision, but this could truly spell the end of the Internet Archive, if the if this appeal fails, it, it, part of the argument that I see happening uh, around a lot around this issue is that there aren't really a lot of victims here, and, and that's and that's a somewhat fair statement to make because there aren't a lot of individual writers that probably have lost much in the way of money because of this, at least not in any verifiable way, because most of the books that are being lent out through the Internet Archive are books that have existed for more than a couple of years. And for most books, not all, but most books, that usually spells the end of their their fiscal viability, most books do well initially and then peter off. That's how book sales go. And so so the argument is, in, in Internet Archive's favor, the argument is that since these books tend to be a little older, there's no writers that have lost a bunch of money and realistically no publishers that probably lost that much money either. The issue there, the issue though is, is that it's setting a precedent. 
right? So from the publisher's perspective, a precedent is being sent where you can kind of freely, willy-nilly lend out digital copies of their books that are under copyright, that they currently sell in many cases, with no physical book backing it up, with no um, money changing hands with the publisher, no books being purchased, none of that stuff. And you don't even really have to verify that the books being lent out are in a physical collection somewhere because the Internet Archive really isn't doing that. So setting the precedent here, if the Internet Archive is allowed to continue doing that, well, others can do it too, and it can just expand further, and I can kind of see where the publishers are kind of freaking out about that. I can kind of understand that. Now, I, I, I made it clear, I love the Internet Archive. I rely on the Internet Archive. So when I saw that the Internet Archive was doing this, before the lawsuit even came about, alarm bells went off in my head, where I was like, oh, Internet Archive, this is a bad idea. And I said so to them. Uh, this is a bad idea. It will get you sued without a doubt. And I don't. I, and I, I told them flat out, I don't see a way where you win a lawsuit if the, if the publishers decide to come after you. And lo and behold, here we are. The publishers sued them, and the publishers are winning. And, and I don't see a way for the Internet Archive to win here. Now, one of the, one of the um, things that the Internet Archive kind of seems to be suggesting is that copyright law essentially was suspended because of the pandemic. That seems to be kind of what they're suggesting, which is a crazy suggestion. Whether they want that to be the case or not, it, it, it's there. And it, that just simply didn't happen. And so now here we are. They, the Internet Archive, if they lose this appeal, they run the real risk of getting shut down. Now the problem with this Beyond just the fact that the Internet Archive does a tremendous amount of really good stuff, and I would hate to see them not be able to do it anymore, simply because they made a really stupid mistake. I mean, they started a project that made no legal sense whatsoever. It may have come from a place of good intentions, but they got into it. Basically, they went into it knowing they were going to get sued into oblivion. It's like they wanted it. It's bizarre. I, I don't know why why they would have done this. But if they get shut down, there's no existing way that I can think of to easily and quickly mirror what the Internet Archive does. Because they have a huge data center. They collect huge petabytes and petabytes of data. Last I heard... They were in the over, over a hundred petabytes of archived material. Now, how in the heck are we going to distribute that? How are we going to back that up effectively? Now, sure, you and me and everyone else can say, okay, well, I'm really interested in, say, uh, all these old Byte magazine scans and some of the old computer newsletters. I'm going to go download as many of those as I can so I have a personal archive of that. That's doable. 
But how do we move that all? All of the amazing material that's there to a place where we can all easily get access to it. And the answer is really that we can't. Because the companies that could have the amount of storage capacity and server capacity to mirror that, there is no way on this green earth that they're going to take the risk of mirroring that data. Because it's not just this book lending issue that they're getting sued over that is the problem with the Internet Archive. They have ROMs from nearly every video game console ever made. They have commercial video games and software for nearly every computer platform ever made. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of titles. Now, some of those are abandoned titles. Some of those have been released into the public domain by their authors. Some of them are not in the public domain, but are free to distribute. There's a lot of shareware archives and the like that are totally legal for Internet Archive to have. But some of them, a great deal of them, are not just dubious legality, but are outright definitely not legal. And because the Internet Archive is so incredibly vast, so huge, with such an absolutely astronomical amount of content on it, some of it will get whoever hosts it into legal trouble. So no, no big company, no Google, no Microsoft, no Amazon, no, no one like that is going to come to our rescue. No one that happens to have, let's say, a couple hundred petabytes of storage just lying around, along with hundreds, if not thousands of hard drives that they're going to be willing to put into rotation on a daily or weekly basis to replace the failing hard drives that are likely to fail as it go forward. This is just, there's, there's not a positive future here for the Internet Archive. And that is a major, major bummer. I mean, massive. On the scale of of bummeriness and bummeritude, this ranks up there really high. Because what we had was an amazing resource for research, for digital archaeology, and for computer history. Among other things, including 100-plus-year-old audio recordings from wax cylinders and so many other amazing things that have been archived. So if you want stuff from the Internet Archive, now's now's the time to go grab it. It's probably not going to disappear overnight. But if they fail this appeal, if this appeal fails, which it almost certainly will, because it was obvious to everyone who looked at it for more than 10 seconds that the Internet Archive was not going to be in compliance with the law with this book lending program that they created. It's going to it's going to go away. It's a bummer. It's a terrible bummer. But what can you do? What can you do? You tried to, I tried to tell you, Internet Archive. I tried to tell you guys, but you didn't listen. You blew it up. Damn you. Damn you all the hell. Oh, heavens to Betsy. All right, we're coming up on a break. Stick around. We got some interesting stuff to talk about uh, relating to the future of online publishing. Woohoo! So much fun. Buying bread from a man in Brussels. He was six foot four, 
full of muscle. I said, you speak my language. He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich. And he said, do you come from a land down under? Welcome back. The world of online publishing is really heating up. I mean, the fangs are coming out, claws and slashing. And when I mean online publishing, I'm not just talking about things like, I don't know, YouTube and whatnot. But we're talking Twitter and Substack and so many other platforms, social media publishing, article publishing, podcasts, videos, the works. Every platform seems to have it out for the other platforms. So much so that various platforms are making it hard or even close to impossible to utilize each other. Case in point, Substack. I, I publish to Substack is one of the platforms I publish to. It's a great it's a great place to put articles up. It formats articles really nicely. If you if you have a if you subscribe to something on Substack, they call them newsletters, but they're really just publications. You get an email whenever a new article is published, and that is the full article is just right there in the email. It's really convenient and handy. And anyway, so I published a Substack. And so I got this little alert from the Substack team that they've created a new feature that they call notes, right? A note. Well, what is a note? Well, honestly, it looks like Twitter. (laughs) What it looks like is a really slimmed down social media network that's specific to each individual Substack publication. So you can you can publish this this little uh, Twitter-like social network. So I can post a a short form post much like I would on Twitter like a tweet, but I, they call it a note on Substack. And then other authors, other readers and whatnot can comment on that and share that with their audience and and whatnot. So basically, it's a lot like Twitter, but it's kind of a more of a sub feature than than the primary thing, right? Like Substack's primary functionality is not this little social media network. I think that's just a way for people to talk to each other and spread articles around and and whatnot. So they released this new feature and it's it's currently in beta and I think it goes live like full public later this week. And, and honestly, from what little testing I've done of it, it actually looks pretty cool. It looks pretty cool. Twitter responded to Substack creating a feature that looks kind of Twitter-ish. It's Twitter-alike. Most social media kind of has that look. They they all kind of look the same. There's only so many ways you can put on the screen, here's a really short post, and then here's a bunch of replies to that short post. You know what I mean? Like... There's just, there's only so many ways you can make that design. And this does look a little Twitter-ish, but so does Mastodon, so did Google+, so so does so many other things. Anyway, Twitter responded. And they responded by making it really, really hard to talk about and publish and search for Substack URLs on Twitter. Yeah. As a case in point, you could, up until a few days ago, go to Twitter and in a search field, 
type in a Substack domain, right? So let's say like lunduke.substack.com. You could type that into the search field and what you would get back would be a full list of every Substack article that ever got linked to right? And this is actually a pretty common thing throughout Twitter. If you put in a domain or a subdomain into the search field of Twitter, you can see every time someone posted something from whatever website. Twitter changed that. So now when you search for Substack, it shows you a variety of different search results that don't necessarily have anything to do with what you searched for, but search for words like journal and other words. So making it harder and harder to actually search for individual Substack related content, articles and whatnot on Twitter. And for a time, they even blocked posting Substack articles. In fact, they made it so that you couldn't post tweet. You could not embed a tweet inside of a Substack article. This happened last week. I was writing an article. I I copied and pasted a tweet into a URL into my article because it was part of it. Couldn't do it. And Substack even sent out a little note about it. They're like, look, we don't know what's happening here, but Twitter is not allowing us to embed tweets into Substack articles. We don't know why we're looking into it. I don't know if they've got that resolved yet, but I ended up having to go and take a screenshot of the tweet and post that instead, which was probably better in a lot of ways. But there seems to be a a war going on between the publishing platforms, especially coming from Twitter. And this isn't anything new. This isn't like something new that started when when Elon took over Twitter. This has kind of been a, a, a long-standing issue with Twitter where they would block searches and whatnot for anything they didn't like. And that included competitors. This has been a long-standing thing. And now others do this too. YouTube has just been terrible about it for years. They did not like it when people talk about their competitors. In fact, I I would talk about their competitors and they would instantly demonetize any video I had that talked about their competitors, other video sharing platforms and the like. They were just not okay with that. They demonetized it. They kind of did the equivalent of shadow banning it where people wouldn't get notified of the videos. It was was a royal pain. So now we're in a situation where, where all of the platforms are building up functionality, increasing the amount and type of content that each platform can publish. Twitter is going to be adding in the ability to publish articles coming soon. Elon has talked about that a bit. So you can use Twitter as a subscription platform because people can subscribe and pay. Say say if I wanted to have the Lunduke Journal Twitter account be a paid thing, I could. And then only people who pay could get access to the long form articles that I write, but posted to Twitter. Now, I'm not planning to do that, but I'm just an example. And at the same time, Substack is adding more Twitter-like functionality. So Twitter is adding Substack-like functionality, and Substack is adding Twitter-like functionality. And other platforms like Locals, like at Locals.com, they're adding, they've added functionality from Substack and Twitter and everywhere else. And, and so all of these different platforms are building up and making themselves into the end-all, be-all of publishing platforms. 
which in one sense is great because it gives a lot of choice. So me as a as a podcaster, video producer, article writer, whatever, comic book guy, I can do all of my different types of content and publish them in one place. Now, Twitter doesn't currently have all those features, but Substack and Locals do. I can publish videos, comic strips, articles, PDF files and books, short form social media content. Now, all of it, it's all there, all in one spot. And that's really handy and great for someone like me. But when we see these platforms going to war with each other, when you see the likes of Twitter saying that essentially they're going to stop people from utilizing Substack and linking it on Twitter, well, now we're getting to a point where it's not just that one publisher or one content creator is going to focus on one platform. It's that we will essentially be isolated to that platform. Uh, a, a good example is a, a, a journalist named Matt Taibbi. A lot of you probably have known, know about the Twitter files and whatnot, and I don't want to get into all the details because I don't want to go all political, but Matt Taibbi was given access by Elon Musk to huge databases of content, a lot of the email files from inside Twitter, and then Matt Taibbi would then report on what Twitter had done, how Twitter had worked with other companies and individuals in the past, and as a journalist, he reported on Twitter. Well, Matt Taibbi also mostly makes his living by posting to Substack. Yeah, you see where this is going? So Matt Taibbi was then going to using, he was using both Twitter and Substack to an intense degree. Both were promoting each other for this guy. Well, now, since Twitter is basically blocking Substack in multiple ways... Matt Taibbi said, the heck with this. I'm just going to stop using Twitter. I'm going to go use this new notes thing over on Substack, and I'm just going to hang out over there. And he kind of told all of his followers on Twitter, look, you want to find me uh, starting, you know, next week or so. I'll just be over there. I'll see you later, Twitter. No big deal. I think we're going to see more of that. Now, me personally, I don't get a lot of value out of Twitter. I haven't gotten a lot of value out of Twitter. I've never, I've never really had, I've never really seen a huge amount of, of traffic or excitement come from Twitter and looking at the stats, most people don't either. Uh, really, really, really don't. Uh, there's a lot of bots on Twitter and it's just not all that exciting. So for me, I mostly publish to Substack and locals. In fact, if you're listening to this show, 90% odds you got it from Substack or Locals or one of the podcast feeds which pull from Substack because Substack does all of that for me. And so when I'm looking forward at at, uh, what the future holds, I am I am I am a little bit concerned because there is there is a lot of different platforms going on right now. Locals, Substack, Twitter and many others. And there's a great deal of instability. So when I look around and I say, okay, I want to make sure that all of you can get my shows reliably and consistently on a well-performing platform that isn't going to block my stuff places. Where do I put it? Currently, I stick out in both Substack and Locals because that sort of hedges my bets. 
It gives me two completely independent platforms that have no connections to each other whatsoever. So if one of them goes down, you know that I'll be at the other one, right? But going forward, what what makes sense here? And I thought a lot about this. And I wanted to share a few of my thoughts around self-hosting. Because I, I thought a great deal about how best to publish everything I do for all of you. To make it both easy for you and consistent and easy for me and consistent and reliable. And, and self-hosting, self-publishing is challenging for a number of reasons. There are many many different systems that I can I can prop up and run on a dedicated server or series of servers, which is more likely what it need to be because there's a lot of traffic, that would give me a huge amount of the functionality that I get from, say, Substack or Locals or the like, or even Twitter. Uh, one of them is called Ghost. There's an open source package called Ghost that seeks to essentially emulate Substack. It's not a perfect one-to-one. It doesn't provide all the features and functionality of Substack, not by a long shot. Uh, However, it does provide a good chunk of it. The problem ends up being that when you're building something that delivers everything via email, you also need to administer your own email server. And if you're administering your own email server where you have, um, say, just a private domain with your maybe you and your family's email addresses, and uh, you don't send a lot, a lot of corporate email, you don't have huge mailing lists, that's usually not a problem. But what you'll find is when you run a big business with your own big domain and you have mailing lists of tens or hundreds of thousands of of recipients, people are going to start reporting your emails as spam to the various companies that track those sorts of things, even if the emails you send out are not spam. That that absolutely will happen because inevitably you will make someone grumpy. You will say something to someone in some message, in some email that's going to make someone grumpy and they're going to report it, which will mean that your domain will end up getting blocked by a variety of different companies, which means that say all of a sudden your emails will no longer be deliverable to Hotmail or Yahoo or ProtonMail or Gmail and all of a sudden will be auto-flagged as as spam or be rejected entirely. It's absolutely a thing that happens. The amount of effort and work that goes into maintaining an email server that stays not just up and functioning, and not being attacked by an onslaught of, of, of elite hackers, but is, is in good standing with all of the other email servers of the world is a huge full-time job. And that doesn't even take into consideration the idea of, of keeping a server up and running and secure, a, a server that has all the functions that you can get from Substack or from locals that can handle all the monetary transaction, it, it becomes a bit of a nightmare. So self-hosting is an interesting option, and it's one that I continually reevaluate because there's a lot of benefits to self-hosting, a lot. It's simply at this point for someone like me who needs to publish video, audio, 
uh, PDF files, all sorts of things, huge email lists, RSS feeds, payment processing and different. There's just no, there's no current one solution out there to actually self-host. Ghost, WordPress, Drupal, etc. None of them are capable of doing what I want to do. Not, it's not even a matter of ease of use. It's just not doable without thousands of man hours of custom development work. So then I look back. I look back at Substack and Locals and, and Twitter and all the other platforms. And I think, my gosh, I hope they can stop fighting for a few minutes because it would be nice if I could publish my Substack links on Twitter without having problems. <laughs> It's amazing. So what are we looking at going into the future? I I don't even know. The future of online publishing, YouTube and and Rumble and Locals and Twitter and Facebook and and all of them and Substack, there's so many options. There's so many options building with in popularity, gaining an excitement, gaining adoption from big names. Names much bigger than myself that it's really hard to predict exactly how this is going to go. I would not be surprised at all if we end this year, if we end 2023 with very different companies on top of the online publishing world. And which those are, I'm not certain. (laughs) All right, we're coming at the end of the hour. Stick around for hour number two. We've got hour number two. I, I got to be honest with you. There's no listener questions this week. I just don't have time for it. I feel terrible. I feel bad. Uh, last week was a short listener question segment as well. My apologies. Next week, we're going to do a full hour of your questions. So I'll ask everyone uh, far ahead of time to send in those questions. Get your, your nerdy and tech support questions in. We'll do a full hour next week. But coming up an hour two this week... We're talking about Apple doing layoffs. Yeah, that's happening. The fact that Facebook apparently had a support team, but or they did. I, did you know Facebook had a I didn't know they had a support team, but they're getting all laid off too. Uh, Google is getting rid of staplers. <laughs> that's a real thing. Exploding USB flash drives. Actual bombs that are, that are built into flash drives. Um, a heist at the Apple store ton of stuff from computer history. Hour number two is jam-packed. Stick around. We're going to have some fun.